Welcome back to El Nino Speaks, everyone. Today, I'm here with Scott Greer of Highly Respected. How are you holding up these days, man? I'm doing great. I'm staying respected. I'm putting out incredible episodes every week, twice a week. So it's uh, I'm doing great. Fantastic. And it goes without saying that you are a highly respected America First commentator, but there are several folks in my audience who, how should I put it, are IQ supplement deprived, if you will, and they probably don't know much about you. Could you tell them more about yourself before we start touching on today's topics? Well, I was once a uh, well-respected conservative journalist. I still am, you could say. I put out a book in 2017 called No Campus for White Men. I have my own podcast, uh, Highly Respected. The regular episode comes out once a week, every Monday on YouTube. And then there is a IQ supplement that comes out usually around Thursday on Substack. And so those are twice a week. And I tweet and write for Revolver, American Greatness, some other places occasionally. And that's what I do. And I tweet at Scott M. Greer. And that's mainly my past. I, I worked at the Daily Caller for a while, got on Fox News, and now I'm uh, on uh, the El Nino show. So it's, uh, you know, moving up in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yep. One can definitely say that. So you have pretty strong immigration patriot inclinations and also take staunch pro-American identity positions. Would you say that figures like Pat Buchanan played a critical role in shaping your political outlook? Yeah, I would say so. I think if you look, you know, I grew up in the 2000s. I am a millennial. I am not a Zoomer. I'm an old man now. And I remember in the early 2000s, pretty much conservatism was George W. Bush. Like, this is what conservatism was. And it wasn't very appealing to me. You know, I wasn't down with like these colors don't run and then being like, you know, having this diverse cornucopia of America out there of just saying like, oh, we're all Americans and our main goal is to take out bad guys and all these various places. So people were very I was pretty repelled by what conservatism was, you know. It didn't seem to be addressing the real issues. It seemed to be more focused on what was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan rather than what was going on here. And George W. Bush wanted to push amnesty and and things like that. So, And when you watch Fox News at that time, which my parents did, you saw that that was all conservatism was about loyalty to George W. Bush, loyalty to these stupid wars, loyalty to, to whatever stupid thing that he's about to do. And having figures like Pappy Cannon and Ron Paul and being more acquainted with them and realizing that there are alternatives to that type of conservatism where these guys are addressing real issues, real topics. You know, even though Ron Paul wasn't really an immigration restrictionist guy, he occasionally uh, supported it at various points of his politics. But I was really inspired when he was got up there and he talked about how the we got in, how 9-11 was caused. And he was like, it's actually caused by our policies in the Middle East, you know, blowback. This is why. And then idiotic conservatism that was prevalent at that time were like, how dare you blame America for this? And it was like him just giving an intelligent response of like, this is why it happened. It's because of our uh, unnecessary involvement in the region. And that was something that you really saw. And you're like, hey, that guy is presenting something that's different from ordinary conservatism. And I was also never won over by liberalism. (laughs) The left always seems stupid to me. 
And, uh, you know, I was just not down with what they were selling at any point in my life, even when I was a young kid, especially in college. But so figures like that, Pappy Cannon, Ron Paul, getting acquainted with those paleoconservatism type figures in when I was in college, very early on in college, presented a different type of right wing ideology than what was in the mainstream. And now it's at the ascendant. Now no one wants to be a Bush style conservatives. You know, no one is talking about compassionate conservatism. People are afraid to even talk, say that they're a fan of nation building. And no one wants to say that they supported the Iraq war. And so those are very positive developments. That type of thing that I got into, you know, late 2000s, uh, early 2010s, you know, very few people were into that. You saw some murmurs about that or saw some types of people getting into that early on. But now you after Trump, that type of America first nationalism is what's popular. I definitely share a similar background. And I would say that I got into a lot of politics through Ron Paul, but I found his positions, especially against like the civil rights revolution, the the anti-discrimination aspects where he was opposed to like the federal bureaucracy to be some of his most like compelling points, unlike a lot of other people who were drawn to Ron Paul. And that's what I generally liked about him in addition to like some of his stuff about rolling back the administrative state. But I think at the end of the day, I, I tended to identify much more with the Buchananite wing on like the issues of like national identity and having like a polity that represents like the historic American nation and not just having like an idea because I think we've seen over the past decade or so a lot of fissures emerge, not just like in the conservative movement, but also like libertarian movement and other spaces of the right where you are seeing like divisions between like those who are more like identitarian and those who believe in like abstractions and whatnot. Yeah, no, totally. And But I think one thing that just Ron Paul was big about is that you didn't have those Trump-like figures, you know, at that time to gather around. I certainly was more into Buchanan stuff. I never, even though I liked Ron Paul, and I definitely liked when Ron Paul was out there in 2010, as you mentioned, the bringing up the Civil Rights Act, I really liked how so, uh, Ron Paul was like, no, this, is, this act has eliminated freedom of association in America. It's unconstitutional. It's created this whole bureaucratic regime that goes after American rights. Like, we shouldn't be a part of that. And people are like, how racist is that? I like that Ron Paul, his son, was in that. But other stuff in libertarianism, I never got uh, like the uh, non-aggression principle, all this type yeah. of silly stuff. And the, the type of like religious devotion to the free market, I've become probably more uh, traditionally conservative on economic issues uh, over time. But the just type of weirdness that like the free market can solve everything. It, it's very much like uh, religious cultists who believe whatever divine figure that they're worshiping is like, don't worry, this God we're worshiping is going to solve all the problems. And that's how they treat the free market. I just found that very bizarre. And also this hyper individualism that you are a state unto yourself. I found that silly. So I was never into that, but I was definitely more into the Buchananite stuff and that type of nationalism. But we didn't really have that up until Trump. And I think a lot of people are uh, spoiled by what we have today, and they don't appreciate what Trump did because pre-Trump, man, it was so bad what yes. we had before. I remember in 2016, we're like, maybe Scott Walker will be <laughs> the closest to what we're about. And it's like Scott Walker is one of the most boring politicians out there. 
And then Trump came down the escalator and he talked about they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. It's some, I assume, are good people. And you're like, hell yeah, we have somebody speaking, talking about what we want. He's talking about the wall. He's not worshiping the free market like it's some ancient uh, god that demands daily devotions. You know, he's he's talking about political correctness. He's sitting back at political correctness. He's not apologizing for saying these truthful things. And foreign policy, you know, he's talking about how Bush lied to get us into Iraq. He's no longer trying to pretend that there was weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And so it's a breath of fresh air. And now we are the beneficiaries of that. And I think a lot of people uh, don't appreciate what Trump did to make the right far better than it was before he came down the escalator. Indeed. Now, there are several issues that the nationalist right is incredibly passionate about. They range from economic nationalism, immigration restriction, and a more restrained foreign policy, among others. Of these issues, which of them is like the most important to you? that is raised by populism. I mean, I think it would be, I mean, it probably would be immigration. I think when it comes to the economic stuff, over time, the reason why a lot of the people who were dissident right before Trump or during his time were really hammering on conservative economic orthodoxy because conservatives seemed that all our problems could be solved by tax cuts and eliminating regulations and having as much free trade as possible. If you see the riots in Baltimore or something, they just see more free trade. And so it's like, I don't think they're addressing this issue. So we were attacking that stuff as a way to counter signal the idiotic conservatism of that time. But now people have taken that as like the central focus rather than the identity issues that is embodied by immigration, embodied by critical race theory in schools and in government training and in corporate training, and in this you know civil rights regime we have and the imposition of affirmative action and racial quotas in every aspect of life. I mean, now, you know, the Biden administration wants to impose racial quotas on disaster relief. We have to have affirmative action disaster relief. That was what Kamala Harris was talking about. It's like, we want to have greater focus on communities of color. It's like, it's a hurricane. <laughs> you know, it's like prioritizing communities of color. You know, if your house is destroyed and you happen to be white, you're going to have to wait in line for disaster relief because you're the wrong skin color. And I think that's like the type of stuff that's more important. It's not this type of economic populism, which is much safer to talk about. And it allows them to be published in the New York Times and to create their own little niche within the mainstream media and say like, oh, we're edgy. We're talking about government intervention in the economy. We're we're conservatives, but we're pro-union. And they're adopting a lot of terrible policies of the left to simply get (laughs) plaudits in the New York Times. And I don't think that's really it. But I think it's the immigration stuff, the identity stuff that's centered around affirmative action, And just the civil rights regime itself. I think if you had to think of a policy, you know, comparing something like the RAISE Act, if you had a choice of passing the RAISE Act or eliminating the Civil Rights Act, I would probably choose eliminating the Civil Rights Act by a minor margin, just because we would finally get freedom of association. A lot of these politically correct woke policies in schools and government and in business training and in universities would be seriously deflated 
if we eliminated that act. And there'd be so much of this government bureaucracy taken out by repealing that act. Raise Act would do a lot of great things. And for those who uh, listeners may not remember what the Raise Act is, that was a bill proposed by a couple of Republican senators, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, and uh, actually the departed David Perdue, who lost in uh, Georgia 2020. That would have reduced immigration by half. Would have been a great thing. I support that type of stuff. But if I had to choose, if you could only choose one idea, I would say repealing the Civil Rights Act. Yeah, I, I'd agree in, th- in that context as well, because like the Civil Rights Act is one of the landmark legislative acts that's used as a blunt instrument against the historic American nation. And I've long argued as well that the 1960s was a great leap forward, engineered by the cultural left to like totally subvert the nation. And people that don't really get it is like an ultimately like a kind of like litmus test that if people don't get like how bad the 60s were in terms of legislative policy, like you're dealing with somebody that is like fundamentally blue pilled. In my estimation. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. Exactly. Because, I mean, you really have to go back to that history and understand it. And so many of these people don't want to accept these things. I mean, they all sometimes say like, oh, we're for immigration restriction. But then if they see, you know, immigration law being enforced, like I think about like those Border Patrol agents who are on horseback trying to like corral those Haitians. And they were just simply trying to get them to like a detainment uh, center and people were horrified by this like oh it's so terrible or this is so bad how can we do this or with the um, detainment facilities under Trump where they're like oh these are concentration camps we can't have this and now Biden that's even worse but I mean you really have to a lot of people get squishy about this stuff and they'll say these things but when push comes to shove when it comes down to these issues or a better example of the George Floyd case You know, they'll like, oh, this is so terrible. They'll try to agree with the left. And then maybe when it's more appropriate or less controversial to say it was wrong to stand with this, then they'll say it. But when you miss these litmus tests or miss these important tests of where you stand, whether it's George Floyd, whether it's harsh immigration enforcement, I don't only want to say it's harsh immigration enforcement, just strong immigration enforcement. And people are like, oh, we can't do this. This is bad. And, you know, that's a real test of whether you're you get this or not. Oh, agreed. And on top of that, the Hart Seller Act was also passed during the civil rights revolution. And it makes sense because of the fact that it's its very ethos is rooted in egalitarianism and all of that. That that was like a decade full of social engineering. I'm kind of glad that Christopher Caldwell uh, dropped that uh, recent book about that because now conservatives are slowly beginning to recognize how bad that decade was. I want to shift gears to one point that I've noticed on your shows with regards to this like bizarre form of anti-Trump nationalism, if you will, that's been popping up recently, populism specifically. What is this group all about and what kind of threat does it pose to people who genuinely want to promote American identity? Well, I don't know if threat is the right word, but I think it's a lot of these people who, one thing I've pointed out is that it does not pay to be ahead of the curve on things. And so a lot of people who are early Trump supporters, 
they're kind of ignored and people don't want to listen. But the people who got the most benefits from being Trump supporters at that at that time were the people who were like never Trump in 2016, and then they became pro-Trump. And now all these pro-Trump people who were talking about how Trump was the greatest president ever, and they would defend no matter whatever action Trump did, even if it sometimes went against uh, America First principles. Now they've all shifted to being anti-Trump and pretending that DeSantis is the second coming of uh, like George Washington or whatever is the future of Caudillo, which like DeSantis is doing a lot of great things. I wish that all Republican governors were like Ron DeSantis. But at the same time, I think he lacks a lot of qualities to be that leader, to be that guy. And comparing him to Trump, if you're looking at and a lot of people are very unfair to Trump and what he did throughout his office. Now, when he was president, I was openly, you know, I would criticize him when he did wrong things, like when he fired Jeff Sessions. You know, I was very critical of that. If his somewhat of his lukewarm response to the riots of, the, of summer 2020, you know, I was critical of that and the platinum plan. I was willing to criticize him, but I was still pro-Trump. And a lot of these people who are now extremely anti-Trump were saying that this is the greatest thing ever. Or like my favorite is hiring John Bolton, which I was critical of at the time. And a lot of these people I see who are now anti-Trump populists, they were like, this is awesome. Bolton is based. And I was like, what? <laughs> and now I yeah. see these people complaining about Trump and they're like, he hired John Bolton. It's like, I can find tweets of you celebrating John Bolton, even when he was in the office. And so some of this is just pure opportunism. I mean, it's like the nature of politics. It's like politics is an opportunistic field. People you know, they feel that if there's two stuck in one lane that they're going to miss out on the next wave and they're going on this bandwagon. And, and it's also Trump is they feel is too disreputable to support. And this is true for a lot of the people of the National Review types. Those type of people were never Trump supporters, even when he was the president. But those people are very happy with someone with DeSantis. And like, once again, I'm not like hating on DeSantis, but I think that they're upholding DeSantis as a way to get the MAGA base away from Trump and to restore the Republican Party to its pre-Trump state. Because DeSantis, I mean, he does some good things. He says a lot of the things that I like, but he's ultimately a return to normalcy for the Republican Party. The institutions that run this country do not feel as threatened by DeSantis as they do by Trump. I mean, they are not trying, like, look at what they're trying to throw at Trump. I mean, they impeached him twice. They're trying to indict him on whatever they can find. You know, they've censored him from all social media. You know, they've hounded him out. They're trying to sue him over various things. And anytime he made a statement to, you know, the public, they would try to censor that. And even they still try to do that. Even when he doesn't post his own videos, videos of Trump rally are censored on YouTube. And they do feel him as a threat. They do feel him as a challenge to the system. And I think he is the best challenge to the system because the thing that I, as conservatives and America Firsters, we ultimately want to do is we want to change the status quo. We want to push the status quo outside so we can create positive change. And only Trump presents that opportunity. I think with DeSantis, even though he does a lot of good things, I think it is a return to the pre-Trump status quo where we have limited opportunity to make the positive change that we want.
He's not that dynamic of a character. He's not, he doesn't have the charisma of Trump. You can never imagine him electrifying like a crowd of like 10,000 people in, you know, in a stadium. You know, people would be like, oh, he's making good points. I mean, this is the case with most politicians. It's not that much of an attack on DeSantis. It most politicians are like that, but the type of you know, rock concert vibe of Trump and this like really powerful movement where people will travel all over the country just to hear Trump speak and being really inspired by him and wanting to put all their effort behind him. You know, that's not really there with DeSantis. So what's happening with this neo-never Trumpism, as I like to call it, is it's trying to adopt a lot of the more respectable elements of Trumpism that's different from conservatism. And it's trying to shear it from talking about identity. It's like, oh, you know, Trump's shithole country comment. Oh, we're not going to have that. Oh, Trump talking about anti-white racism. Oh, no, no, no. You can't talk about that. Uh, critical race theory is anti-everyone. You know, they don't want to, they want to keep yeah. this in a nice, <laughs> safe little box. So it's safe for National Review to talk about. It's safe for Washington Examiner to talk about. And they make a conservatism where they think it's like threatening, but it's within the safe confines of what's proper discussion and polite discussion. And they hope that they have a figure in DeSantis, even though DeSantis is very good. And I don't know if DeSantis is fully responsible for this. I blame more of his supporters rather than DeSantis himself for this image or this mentality. Oh, yeah. If they think that they can uphold him as somebody that, oh, don't know. It's like a kid asking, like, I want Trump. And it's like, no, we have Trump at home and it's and it's Ron DeSantis. You know, it's like when people like kids are demanding that they want like Coke or whatever. It's like, oh, we have we have Coke at home and it's like the terrible store brand. That's really the pitch that they have with DeSantis versus Trump. So they want to make a more safer, more reputable Trumpism that just focuses on economic issues. It focuses on traditional type of social conservative concerns. No, but we're not talking about like gay marriage or something that could be construed as bigoted. We're just staying within those safe confines. Maybe we'll talk about immigration, but we'll make sure that it's safely within the confines of polite discussion. You know, we're never going to go into what Trump is saying about they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime. You know, we're not going to say that type of stuff. And that's really what they want to return to is a the status quo because it's better for them and that they are not going to get disavowed by their friends. They're not going to lose their job. They're not going to have to be like, oh, I'm not going to be invited to this nice cocktail party if I support Ron DeSantis, they'll see me as one of the good people and maybe I can get it. And for this is especially true for the punditocracy and for the pundit class is that they think that they can now get columns in reputable publications, mainstream publications, as long as they are anti-Trump, but pro DeSantis. So I, I don't know if it would be threat because the people aren't following this. The people are not buying this. If you look at any poll numbers, Trump is the favorite candidate of at least 50% of the electorate. And they're going to be more supportive of him if he gets indicted. They, you know, his numbers went up among Republicans after the FBI raid. And the more the federal government comes after him, the more the regime says that he is enemy number one, they are going to, and I'm, they, as in the Republican base, is going to rally behind him even stronger. And it's going to be so ridiculous when Trump is the persecuted man, the public enemy number one, the whole regime is after him. And they're like, well, that's too bad about him getting indicted. 
how about this guy who is not the public enemy number one? But don't worry, he's the real threat. And that's just not going to work on the base. So that's why I say it's not too much of a threat. It's more of something that people who are discussing politics have to deal with. It is a it would be a problem if they try to do, you know, this if Trump is indicted, they then try to promote it's like, well, he can't win. How about we have this we have Trump at home is the uh is the argument. Are there any public policy issues that DeSantis holds that really worry you in particular? I don't think he's that good on tech censorship. I think that's one thing is that I'm not trying to be too anti-DeSantis because compared to most <laughs> yeah. Republican governors, you have the DeSantis Republican governor is someone like Asa Hutchinson who yeah. betrays the base or on Spencer a daily Cox. basis. And yeah, Spencer Cox, like they're so terrible. And so DeSantis compared to them looks like Andrew Jackson. So I don't want to, yeah. you know, I understand where it's, but we like free speech. We like free discussion. So it's it's right to criticize him. But I think it's like tech censorship. You know, his tech censorship bill was totally pointless. Like it didn't solve the issues. And even when it was pointed out that it was like problems like, hey, this will still allow censorship. And a lot of his staff thought it was good because they're like, well, we can't allow stuff like anti-Semitism on the Internet. So why would we try to defend free speech in that regard? And I think he can be talked into allow, especially on the tech censorship issue, and this is a problem with some even with Republicans, is that he will push out a bill that conservative media will celebrate as this incredible attack on big tech when it really doesn't solve the issue at all. Like Texas had a much better tech censorship bill that actually gave users the ability to counter their bans and suspensions and had a lot more teeth to it, but it got a lot less fanfare from conservatives because people don't like Greg Abbott and the state leadership in Texas as much as they like Ron DeSantis, even though they push, even though they're doing a lot better things, especially when it comes to migrant busing. Well, the last time I looked at it, it was like 11,000, but it's probably more than that. It's probably might be like 13,000 migrants that they've bust out of the state. And those migrants are in Texas. They're in rural communities. They're in communities that are like, we don't have the ability to take care of these people. Why don't you send them to sanctuary cities that want them? And they're like, sure, we'll take them out of our state. And they're helping local communities. I mean, you can argue that this is the most effective tactic, but it is actually helping their communities. You know, they, people like to talk about rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies. Texas is actually doing that. With the migrant flights that Florida did, they went to Texas, found 50 random migrants, put them on Martha's Vineyard. You know, they got way more attention than anyone else, but they never followed up on it. They never followed up on it because there was then pushback towards it because he began getting lawsuits, threat, you know, federal government starting to probe it. You know, a local sheriff is starting to investigate this matter. And so they got worried about that. And they were supposed to have another flight to Delaware with the same thing, you know, putting them near in uh, Joe Biden's home state. But then they canceled the flight, not giving a reason. And they haven't had any flights since then. They I mean, for some of it is due to the hurricane, but they've had no flights since then. I don't think you're going to see the flights again, even after once they cleaned up after the hurricane. And so I think it that's also indicative of what might have with DeSantis, if that there is some pushback that he feels that might threaten him. It He may backtrack, but he has conservative media more on his side. So they'll celebrate this and say this is the greatest thing ever. But then when conservative media is no longer talking about it, he'll backtrack. And it's even the same with that Texas censorship bill, which he hasn't put that much effort into defending. 
uh, got blocked by a court too, which once again, the Texas bill actually has been supported by federal court. Uh, Supreme Court shot it back to the to the lower courts, but a federal court has upheld it. You know, no federal court has upheld the Florida bill. So, you know, some of the problems with DeSantis are same with Trump. I think another big issue would be foreign policy. I don't trust him on much as foreign policy as I do with Trump. You know, he's not that bad when it comes to foreign policy. Like, if you look at Comparing him to Mike Pompeo or like Nikki Haley, <laughs> yeah. I'd probably trust DeSantis more. Yeah. But comparing him to Trump, comparing him to Rand Paul, comparing him to Matt Gates, you know, comparing him to Josh Hawley, Josh Hawley, somebody who could possibly run in 2024, I would view him as more suspect. As like, I don't fully trust him on that. Like Trump did some weird things on foreign policy, but his instincts were always good. You know, John Bolton and all these people are like, hey, we want war with Iran. We want war in these places. And he's like, hey, you guys want war everywhere. I don't want war. And he was always insistent on wanting to pull out of Afghanistan, despite the massive political pressure against that. I mean, he had limited political capital to do that. It's like one thing that I like or I trust more about Trump is that his instincts are usually sound and good. I don't know what DeSantis's instincts are the same way that Trump. I don't think they're as good. And when it comes to foreign policy, like I could see him doing a lot of good things on immigration. I could see him doing, you know, I'm more skeptical about the censorship issue, the big tech thing. I could see him doing something on that. But when it comes to foreign policy and getting us involved in another war, I think if a Another Republican gets in the White House and his name is not Donald J. Trump. They're going to try to get one of these regime change wars that they've always wanted, maybe against Iran, maybe again. I don't know if they would do Russia because they have nukes, but probably against Iran or maybe some other territory. And they try to do another Iraq solid invasion. And one other thing is that I think Ron DeSantis, people complain about the personnel around Trump is that he would bring in the standard conservative people because all those people love DeSantis. There's no reason for him not to bring those people in. He's like, these guys love me. They support me. You know, all the standard conservative movement operations that hated Trump love DeSantis now. And he would bring them in. And a lot of them haven't changed their foreign policy views. They may say some better things about immigration. They may now want government intervention to stop censorship. But when it comes to foreign policy, they're still hawks. You know, they're still hawks. They still want more involvement in these stupid conflicts. And if they're the ones running as foreign policy, I don't think DeSantis has the non-interventionist instincts that Trump has. And that could lead to a bad situation if the people around him decide that they want another war. So I would say probably foreign policy in censorship. I could see him changing his mind on. But foreign policy, I think, is the one thing I would be most worried about. Now, for immigration policy, the holy grail, I'd argue, is the immigration moratorium, which has been a position that, like, VDAIR has held for its entire existence, for example, in the late, like, starting in, the, like, the late 90s. And the concept has actually gained traction as we've seen people like Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene introduce legislation promoting that, or at least like co-sponsoring it. Do you believe that an immigration moratorium would will be like a viable legislative project within the next decade or so? 
I think it's a good starting line because it's such a radical position that then it could create the grounds for having immigration restrictions. So I think it's good that Republican lawmakers are introducing it and that they put this as like, this is what we really want. But maybe we'll settle for like reducing immigration by half. And that's really the main goal. I think immigration restriction itself is going to become more viable especially with more Republican victories. If there's a Republican victory in 2024 and, you know, they have a strong control of the House and Senate, we could see a serious immigration reform pass. And even with Trump, a lot of the, you know, Trump was doing a lot, was reducing immigration through executive action, which I assume, I think like DeSantis would also follow that and probably a Josh Hawley and maybe a Ted Cruz if they were president and maybe a few others. Uh, So I think that through executive action, they would do that. But I think putting out the moratorium idea is simply pushing the envelope that we need to reduce immigration. I don't see moratorium itself being as viable as just uh, something like the RAISE Act, as I mentioned earlier. But it's necessary to put that message out there to create a strong, like, this is our starting line. Maybe we'll be happy with some type of immigration restriction, or we will be happier if you exchange some type of immigration reduction so we give up or we maybe aren't advocating for moratorium as much. So it's very good that more Republicans are talking about the dangers posed by legal immigration and trying to restrict it and reduce it. I mean, even when I first was fully involved in politics and starting in 2013, We were just happy if Republicans were opposed to amnesty. Now, pretty much no Republican will come out for that type of full bore amnesty that we saw in the Gang of Eight amnesty in 2013 that Marco Rubio was crafting and Lindsey Graham was crafting, (laughs) you know, that was going to give legal status to every single legal immigrant in this country. Republicans know they cannot publicly advocate for that type of amnesty anymore. They do advocate for things such as, you know, amnesty for dreamers, uh, amnesty for like illegal alien farm workers. You know, they all advocate for that, but they do not advocate for the full scale amnesty of that time. So that's improvement. And you are seeing more Republicans, especially in primaries, talk about reducing legal immigration, not just ending illegal immigration. And that's a positive development for Republicans. So if moratorium, if advocating for the moratorium gets more Republicans to talk openly about restricting immigration, legal immigration, then that's a positive. Do you see a more optimistic future for the GOP at the state level or at the federal level? Well, the state level, they're very right wing. (laughs) So uh, I'm optimistic on both levels. Mm. I I don't know if there'd be any change on that. I think the state level, you're seeing these guys like, I mean, the state legislatures are very right wing. So I would say that I'm very optimistic about that. But I think that's also, you know, I mean, I'm a little skeptical about what they can do, because a lot of that depends on the governor not vetoing these things. So a lot of that having a really solid, staunch state legislature is also having a governor who will go along with this. Like a big reason Texas has a lot of good laws is because they have a staunch legislature and Abbott doesn't lead on these issues, but he accepts what that right wing legislature gives him, which is very good. DeSantis, to his credit, I think DeSantis leads his legislature while Abbott just follows, but both end up with good results. So we need more governors who are not vetoing the great things these 
legislatures pass like Asa Hutchinson does in Arkansas and goes along with it. But I I would be optimistic about both things because I think when you're seeing better legislatures, that means you're going to see better representatives and better senators on the federal level as well. All right. I think this is a good place to close out. Scott, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Before you depart, tell my audience where they can follow your work. That's such a great question. Well, you can follow my Twitter at Scott M. Greer, and that's on Twitter. And then you could follow me on YouTube at Highly Respected. It's youtube.com slash Highly Respected. And I have a Substack where I sometimes post columns. And I also post the IQ supplements once a week there. And that's at highlyrespected.substack.com. So that's how you can follow my work. And hopefully you guys sign up and subscribe to all of my great content. All right. To my audience, I am grateful for your kind attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.